So let's begin this evening's topic, which um, you, you've all got the notes for it. The topic is Jesus Christ. It's, you could say it's the single most important topic that we have to go over, um, and yet it's one I'm certain that most people have never very much thought about. Who is this guy? All right? Jesus Christ. Who is he? If you don't understand the answer to that question, then really nothing in the faith is going to make much sense to you. Um, if you don't know what it means when we talk about who Jesus is, the, the faith is going to be a, something of a mystery when someone tries to describe it to you. But if you do understand it, everything will begin to fall into place. Okay? So a lot of people, if you ask them, polling people on the street, people would say that Jesus is a great teacher, he's a really great guy, a prophet of God. But here's one thing that sets us apart from every other religion in the world. The central fact of what we proclaim Jesus to be is incredibly simple. He's God come down to earth. It's just that simple. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The one who made the stars and the one who made the heavens and the earth. The one who pre-existed all visible creation at a point in time actually entered into his own creation. That's who we believe Jesus is. Imagine the author of a story who at a certain point in the story enters into his own story. We say that's what God did. Okay? So I'm going to try to explain this in several different ways and several different angles, and hopefully some of it will stick. But here's one of my favorite little ways to make the point clear of Jesus' identity. If you died this evening, God forbid, and you're standing before God in judgment, and he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer? Now, the answer is, of course, in your notes. The answer is, Jesus Christ died for, to forgive my sins. That's the answer. Most people wouldn't say that. If I said, why should you, God's up there, why should I let you into heaven? Most people would say, well, I'm a really good person. I tried really hard in life. I was a good mother. I was a good father. I paid my taxes. I obeyed the laws. I obeyed the posted speed limit or any other I-centered statement. But none of that suffices. Because if it's all about you and how good you are and how many laws you obey and how many people you help, then you are your own savior. That's not our faith. That's not our faith. You've heard it said Jesus is the savior. We're going to try to unpack what that means tonight. But if you can get it on your own, just by doing your part, just by having been good, if God owes you heaven, like he's keeping up his half of the bargain, you know, you've done your part on earth, you've been a really good person, you've tried really hard, you've been to church, you even contributed to the Bishop's Lenten Appeal, right? Anybody know what the Bishop's Lenten Appeal is? Oh, you're going to learn, okay? <laughs> you're going to learn, right? Um, uh, if God's just keeping up his half of the deal, then you know what? You, you don't really even need a savior because you're your own savior, you're saved yourself by your sheer goodness. Now, most other religions have some sort of an understanding of that. That's certainly the case in Islam. If you do your part, if you keep the rules, so to speak, um, uh, you're going to get paradise after this is all over. It's, it's like a bargain. It's like a deal. It's not so much that Islam has a savior. It just has instructions. Do your part and... and, and this is what will happen. Um, we don't believe that. 
Okay? We don't believe that. We believe something utterly, completely different from every other religion in the world. We believe that Jesus is God and that he came to save us. Now understand this, first of all, no other religion in the world believes that anybody else has ever God come down to earth. I think sometimes we get so used to thinking this that we assume that other religions have parallel beliefs. I was in college once upon a time and I was tossing the football out on the front lawn of my fraternity house. Believe it or not, I wasn't born wearing a collar. And was having this conversation and he said, where were you earlier today? I said, I was in church. And he goes, yeah, I used to go to church. But you know, I started thinking. And I said, really? And he says, yeah. You know, we say Jesus is God. You know, the Muslims say that Muhammad is God. You know, the Buddhists say Buddha is God. So who's to say we're right? And I thought, yeah, that's a really good point. Who's to say we're right? I hope you know enough about Islam to, to realize that the, the, the Muslims do not think Muhammad is God. And in Buddhism, they certainly don't think Buddha is God. They don't even have a, such a concept of, of a God as we have in, in Christianity or in Judaism, for that matter. They don't even have that, such of a con, much, that much of a concept at all. It's unique to us. And if, actually, if you could ask a Jew about the Messiah and what they expect the Messiah to be. They would not say that they expect the Messiah to be God. It was a complete surprise to the apostles and everybody living in, in, in Jesus' time, and it's still a scandal. If you try to explain this, say, to a devout Orthodox Jew, that, that, that God, the, the, the creator of all, became a man, um, he's, gonna, he's gonna think that you, you cooked the soup too thick, so to speak, okay? This is something that sets us apart. It's the second greatest mystery of our faith <coughs> that God became a man. You say, what's the greatest mystery of our faith? The greatest mystery of our faith is the Trinity. I used to have a separate class just on the Trinity for RCIA, but I dropped it. And the reason is because it's so dry for so long. The Trinity is the most fascinating subject of all. And I wish I could give you a class on the Trinity because it would revolutionize the way you see everything in the world understanding who God is, but it takes so long to get to the point of it being fascinating that I dropped the class because people were just bored. Okay? But this is the second greatest mystery of our faith. God become a man. That's who Jesus Christ is. So who's Jesus? Okay? So first of all, he's a real man. An Israelite born in time. Born in Bethlehem in the time of King Herod. The emperor was Caesar Augustus. Grew up in Nazareth, a, torn in, a town in northern Israel. Anybody ever been to the Holy Land by chance? Been to Israel? Okay, great. So you've probably been to, certainly been to Nazareth. Back then, nobody expected that the Messiah was going to come from northern Israel. It just you just wouldn't expect it. God loves to pull surprises. I mean, the most revolutionary Christian woman in the whole 20th century was probably Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And she came from Albania. Who would have ever picked that, right? I mean, if you were God and you were trying to sway the world and convince the world and give people a great representative of who you are and be your messenger, you probably wouldn't have picked a, you know, a, a four foot ten woman from Albania. You'd probably pick some long-legged supermodel from Paris, right? But that's not the way God plays the game. And in when Jesus' time, he comes from northern Israel and nobody saw that coming. By trade, they say he was a carpenter, but you might find this interesting. Um, the Greek term is tecton. And it kind of means a general handyman. People say Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus was a carpenter. The actual Greek term, if you ever 
find languages interesting like I do, it, it helps to learn a little bit of Greek because then you can get insights into what the New Testament really says. Well, the New Testament, of course, written in Greek, uh, says that he's a, a tecton. And if you could actually, if you could have a modern equivalent of that, it would be kind of like a, like a general practitioner or a handyman, you know, or an electrician. He could kind of do a little bit of everything. Uh, the kind of guy you, you want to know when your lights go out. Okay, he was crucified under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. The emperor at the time was Caesar Tiberius. And now we get to, into some pretty weird stuff. I'm not sure how much of this you've heard before or how much of this is new. Uh, perhaps this sounds very familiar. Perhaps it's brand new. But we say that he was born of a virgin. Jesus had no human father. Like once again, um, I remember a conversation I had over dinner in college, and there was a girl who just couldn't get over that. How could somebody not have a human father? It just doesn't make any sense. You understand that this is a miracle. Miracles are times when God bends the rules. You know, they're, 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 they're a temporary cessation of the rules by which God ordinarily governs the universe. But it was a real conception, but it was affected by the power of God, and I have no idea how that happens. No idea how that happens. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. We understand when we make the sign of the cross that, the, that God is one, but these three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three gods are one God. One God, three persons. We'll get into what a person means later. I might as well just say it as a preview now. Um, a, a person is who you are. A nature is what you are. So you're a human person with a human nature, right? Uh, a person, another way of defining it, is an individual substance of a rational nature. So is a dog a person? No, you already know the answer is no. A dog can't reason like you reason. Is an angel a person? What do you think? Can an angel reason like you reason? I'll just jump out and tell you the answer. The answer is yes. An angel's a person too. An angel can know and love. You can know and love. Uh, God can know and love. A person, only, and only a person can know and love. Um, but he, he, he was, he's a, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Existed from before all time, before there even was a creation. God existed before there was such a concept of, of, of time or even such a concept of place. And yet, this divine person with divine nature at a specific point in time took on human nature. We'll get to that in a second. He had a real name. His name was Jesus, which was an unusual name, not for the time, but for his family. Jesus, uh, despite of what the Bible seems to say, had no brothers or sisters. I could explain that, but I don't want to get too far afield. He was an only child. Uh, Mary was ever virgin. We'll get to that when we talk about Mary and the saints. So you would expect that they would name him after his father. That's just what they did. But they didn't name him after his father. Mary took the instruction that the angel gave him. You will name him Jesus. Okay? Literally, it's Yeshua, which means God saves. We call him Christ. And you might not know this, but Christ is not his last name. Okay? It's not like you can walk through ancient Nazareth and see their mailbox, and the mailbox says, the Christs, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. <laughs> last names are a phenomenon of only about the last four or 500 years. Before the last four or 500 years, people would describe you based on what town you came from, who your father was, or what you did for a living. So if, they, if Jesus had a last name at all, it would have been Ben Yosef or Bar Yosef, meaning son of Joseph. 
Or they would have said, Yeshua Nitzaret, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ means the anointed one. Okay? The Greek is Christos, which is why we call it Christ. The Hebrew is Messiah, Mashiach. When we say Messiah, we mean anointed. Okay? And I hope I'm not going too fast. Um, but in the Old Testament, anybody who was given a mission was anointed. Kings were given a mission, and they were anointed. Priests were given a mission, and they were anointed. Prophets of Israel were given a mission, and they were anointed. They were consecrated to God for a mission. But people spoke of the Messiah. Someday there's going to be the greatest of all coming. And no one was quite sure who he was. If you go back to ancient Israel and ask the word on the street, is there a Messiah coming? They would have said, darn right there's a Messiah coming. God has promised it. God's faithful to his promises. There's going to be a Messiah. And they ask, well, what's this Messiah going to be like? Well, he's going to fulfill the promises made to the prophets. He's going to make Israel great. He's going to make the name Yahweh known to all the distant coastlands. And most people thought that meant he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Most people thought of Messiah in political terms. And I'm sorry to say it, but 2,000 years later, a lot of us haven't moved on. We tend to think of God as someone who's going to deliver us from our political enemies and deliver prosperity. A lot of people think that. If you, if you press, you, know, you, you, can, you can discover uh, that that's what, people, that's what a lot of people expect. And that's what they expected back then. The greatest days in Israel's history, politically and economically, were the days of King David and King Solomon. Israel was basically a world power, a world economic power, respected in the known world, the Mediterranean world that was. I mean, nobody went beyond the, the deserts of Arabia. Nobody went north beyond the mountains. Nobody went south in the deserts of of Africa. The known world was the Mediterranean back then. And Israel was a world power, so they thought the Messiah was going to bring back the, the, the good old days of King David. Right? Um, but the Messiah had a greater mission, one that was far beyond anything anyone would have known. His mission was redemption. Now, nothing's known of him for 30 years of his life. And I find this amazing. Jesus only lived to be 33. How do we know that he lived to be 33? Anybody know? You might find this interesting. I find these little things interesting. The reason why we know, the Bible does not tell us Jesus lived to be 33. How do we know he lived? Have you heard, ever heard of this before? Jesus lived to be 33? Who's heard that before? Never heard that before. Okay, well, you have now. Um, the, the reason is because when you began to be a, a rabbi, you always began at the age of 30. And because if you look at the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus goes through three Passovers before he's crucified. That's how we know he died at the age of 33. Um, but 30 of those years were hidden. The only thing we know about is Christmas, the visit of the Magi, right? The visit of the wise men. Um, you ever heard of the story of Jesus found in the temple at the age of 12? Who's heard the story before? Okay, so good. It's the only thing we know. Everything else is hidden. If you ever hear anything else from Jesus' hidden life, you can be certain it does not come from the Gospels. There are stories out there that come from different gospels written by different, well, long story short, different religions, and there's some pretty bizarre stories. You want me to tell you one of the stories of things Jesus did when supposedly according to these gospels? Supposedly according to one of these gospels, Jesus got into a fight with a, with a boy, and he got angry and shriveled up his arm. And Joseph came out of the house and said, yeah, I told you to stop doing that. You know, like, <laughs> like as if he used his powers to cause evil. It does not... From the Gospels, it's completely not legit. Nothing's known about that. I'd like to say there's a lesson in that. 
10, 10 out of 11 of Jesus' years in this, on, on this earth were in hiddenness and ordinariness, which tells us that God loves hiddenness and ordinariness. Most of our lives are ordinary. Most of our years are ordinary. Most of our deeds are ordinary. And that's what God cares about more than anything else. The things that we focus on, fame, honor, renown, positions of prestige, these things don't matter to God. Joseph died when Jesus was very young. Okay? There's no mention of Joseph in Jesus' adult life. The last time we see Joseph mentioned in the scriptures, Jesus was 12. So he only had three years of his public life. He went out as a rabbi, and he called 12 close followers. Rabbis always called, called followers to, to follow them. Uh, and there was, a lar- there was a process by which a rabbi would call his follower. Uh, he would ask him questions. And depending on how the potential follower responded, he would either be asked to come follow me or he would say to the follower, son, go ply your father's trade. In other words, you didn't get in, you're rejected. And you'll notice all through the scriptures, he asks some questions then he says, come follow me. So he picked who he picked. He worked miracles as a proof of his divine message. He was condemned to death for claiming to be God. Only the Roman Empire could condemn anybody to death. The the, the Jewish authorities had no such power. Sometimes you might hear this said, that, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus was condemned to death for blasphemy, which means claiming to be God. Okay, so yes, he claimed to be God. And yes, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. Um, He died on a cross, the most horrible form of death imaginable. Not sure what you know about crosses or not, but the Romans discovered crucifixion from the Assyrians. When they were conquering lands and the Roman Empire expanded and expanded, they came across Assyria, which is today Syria. And they came across this horrible form of execution by which somebody would be nailed to a tree and hang there for days until they, you know, until they were eaten by, eaten by wild animals or starved to death or suffocated. Long story short about, about crucifixion, it was the most horrible death they'd ever seen. And the Romans thought to themselves, now that's something we can use to intimidate our enemies. They only gave it to the worst criminals. And they gave it to Christ. He made a bold claim that no one else in history has ever made before. He said, three days after I'm dead, I'm coming back. Nobody has ever said that before, (laughs) ever. And lo and behold, it happens. He rises from the dead just as he said he would. Spends 40 days with his apostles after he rises from the dead. And there's something about him that's different in those 40 days. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but people who knew him, spent days with him, would look him in the eyes and not be sure who he was. Stories of him rising from the dead and appearing to like Mary Magdalene. She's looking at him back and forth and it takes her a moment. Something's different about him. And something was different about the way he behaved. He was a little bit different after he rose from the dead. He would walk through walls and come into rooms. Didn't have to go through the door. He would talk to people, have conversations, and then just disappear, poof, appear in someplace else. There was a change. But Jesus spent 40 days in this mysterious fashion after he rose from the dead, before in, his, in their presence, he ascended into heaven and sent them out on a mission. Now, that's the barest outline of our redemption. To make sense of us, we have to turn to the Gospels, okay? We've talked about the Gospels in, in past weeks, I trust. Uh, I believe that was uh, two weeks ago. Um, and the Gospels are hard to understand for three reasons. First, they're dense, they're packed with meaning. They're not narrative stories. They're not supposed to be narrative stories. 
You can read the Gospels and become either bored or overwhelmed because it's just fact after fact after fact. It's not the way we would tell a story today. We would have a nice narrative story. You know, once upon a time on a clear night in the fields outside Bethlehem, such and such happened. And they tell the whole story of Jesus. That's the way we would do it today. That's not the way they did it back then. That's not the way God wanted it to happen. So it's a little bit difficult for us. Second reason the Gospels are difficult is because we're so familiar with them. I can ask you, have you heard this Gospel story before? Have you heard that Gospel story before? And some of you have heard it and some of you haven't. But let's pretend like I was to tell you about Christmas. Is there anybody in this room who hasn't heard the story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a manger with the angels singing glory, glory and excel? We've all heard that before, right? It, let me tell you, when you're a priest, it's really hard to preach Christmas. Everybody knows the story, okay? And we could, this can be a handicap for us in, in taking a look at the Gospels. The third reason why the Gospels are difficult is we have a superficial image of who Jesus is, a very superficial image, and we have to deepen that image. People think he was a really nice guy. He always forgave, always turned the other cheek, patted little children on the head, told us all to love each other. Basically a hippie, right? Um, this is an incredibly weak and superficial image of Jesus and doesn't even reflect the Gospels. Take a close look at the Gospels and you'll upend that image of Jesus in just a couple of minutes. Right? Uh, Jesus was not nice. Everybody thinks Jesus was nice. You know, nice comes from the Latin word neshire. Neshire means not to know. Literally, nice means you're kind of blissfully ignorant. Jesus was not nice. Jesus was loving. It's a big difference. Sometimes love is not nice, is it? When you love someone, you do what's best for them. And sometimes that means confronting them when they do something wrong. Jesus did lots of confronting of people in the Gospels and made a lot of people upset, right? The Pharisees, who I'm sure you've heard of. Who's heard of the Pharisees? Raise your hand if you know about the Pharisees. Everybody knows about the Pharisees. Well, anyway, we'll tell you about them later. He called them hypocrites. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Who's to save you from the wrath to come? My favorite image of Jesus not being nice is when he drove the money changers out of the temple. They were changing money in the temple, and he drove them out of the temple at the crack of a whip. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. My father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. But my favorite detail of that is before he did that, he wove the bullwhip with his own hands. How long do you think it takes to weave a bullwhip? <laughs> he was very deliberate about this. And this is, you know, sweet and gentle Jesus. So deepen your understanding of, of my, my simple way to, to, to summarize that. There's a lot more to goodness than niceness, Okay. It means love, and sometimes it means fighting with, with something you know is evil. Jesus uh, did astonishing things. He amended the Ten Commandments. Of old it was said to you, thou shalt not kill, Jesus would say. Of old it was said to you, thou shalt not commit adultery. But what I say to you is, and this is the Sermon on the Mount, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6 and 7. And people said, wait, wait a minute, wait, did he just... Did he just take the Ten Commandments and, and, and then add the words, but what I say to you is, is he amending the Ten Commandments? Who gave us the Ten Commandments? God. Who's the only one who could possibly amend the Ten Commandments? God. I mean, imagine if I came along to you and, I don't know, said something like, well, you know, the Constitution says that, you know, you have a right to free speech, but what I say to you is, you'd be, wait a minute, Stop. How are you above the Constitution? What are you, a suddenly a founding father all of a sudden? 
You don't have that authority. People at home scratching their heads, you know, asking who, who is this guy? And he would come up to people and he would say, you know, your sins are forgiven. And they'd say, stop, wait a minute, stop. Can't God alone forgive sins? I mean, suppose, I don't know, um, I, I borrowed your car um, and I crashed your car and I wrecked your car. And then you said, oh, that's okay, she forgives you. I'd be like, wait a minute, you, you, can't, you, you can't say she, she forgives me. It's her car, only she can say she forgives me. So Jesus says, well, you're forgiven, God forgives you. What are you, God? What are you, God? So he had them scratching their heads. Jesus did not come out immediately and say, oh, here I am, I'm God, come down to earth. He couldn't. That's not the right strategy. It would have been too much for people. He brings them instead to a point where they themselves begin to ask this question. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll find this to be true. Who is this guy? Is this guy God? Or is this guy just a man? It never dawned on them that he was both. Okay. Both, there's a word for that. We call it the incarnation. He became incarnate. God became a man. The incarnation. It's very hard for us to get our minds around this. Very, very hard. It's even hard for us who are sitting through class and having it told to us. You're going to have to work through this if you really want to understand it. And the more you understand it, the more you're going to realize you have to work through this. Uh, a lot of people down through the ages denied that Jesus was God. You might have heard of the Arians, not Arian with a Y. That was Hitler's Arians. But there was a priest named Arius. And about you know 300 AD, give or take, he led a really large, very successful movement that had something like 90% of the Catholic Church in believing that Jesus was the very best of all possible men and was adopted by God, but wasn't God himself. And we're going to get to this in a second, why that's a really big problem. Okay? Some people deny that he's a man. Right? Uh, he just appeared to be a man, but his humanity was really just an illusion. It was like an angel come down from heaven. It's difficult for the trust to get our minds around this. He's fully God and he's fully man, not half and half. Now, let me try to explain what that means. Jesus is one person who has two natures. Everybody agree Jesus is one person? Everybody nod and say that, yeah, Jesus is not two people, he's one person? Okay. Now we need to understand once again what a person is and what a nature is. A person is, well, you could answer the question, who are you? I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Joe, I'm Fred, I'm Andy, I'm Jeff, I'm Jake, whatever you... Who are you? What are you? I'm a human being. That's your nature. A person is who are you? A nature is what are you? Okay? So a bird has bird nature. Birds do things that birds do. A fish has fish nature. Fish do things that fish do. You have human nature. You do things that humans do. What we say here is Jesus was a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature. Just let it, just hear me now, and if you let it sink in, I think you're going to find this to be very, very fruitful. Very fruitful, okay? He's a divine person. And before I can make that point clear, I have to make this point clear. That means he was not a human person. You say, wait a minute, no, no, study Jesus was a human being. Yes, he was a human being. Because <clears throat> I said he had real human nature, right? Everything that a regular human being can do, real human nature. But if he's, a, if he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity and also a human person, then he's two people. I hope you realize that Jesus is not two people. He was one person, and that person was the second person of the Blessed Trinity. That person of the Blessed Trinity took on human nature, 
without ever shedding divine nature. That's who Jesus is. Okay? That's who Jesus is. When Jesus says I, he means God and man. That's the incarnation. Okay? Um, we call this the hypostatic union, if we're into theological terms, that he has two natures, both divine and human. And now let's take a look at what that means. Okay? First of all, Jesus is God. He never ceases to be God. He could read your heart. He could work miracles. He could bring the dead back to life. Jesus never ceases to be man. He was really born of a real mother. He really had to eat and drink. He really suffered. He really died. But everything that he did, it was a divine person, one person who did that. Now that understanding, one person, two natures, is why Jesus is the savior. Okay? It's why his death on the cross matters. Let's, take, let's try to take a closer look. And I hope I'm not going too fast, okay? Because he's divine and human, everything that he does is very, very important. He's the perfect example of who God is. You look at Jesus, and you're seeing who God is. Jesus speaks, God speaks. Jesus holds his silence, God holds his silence. Jesus gives you a good example, God gives you a good example. One of my favorite examples of this, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and Jesus wept. Who's heard that before? Raise your hand. Shortest verse in the Bible. Dominus flavit, the Lord wept. Now if God, if Jesus wept, that means God wept. If Jesus was, was shed tears at the, at the death of his friend, that's why I say it's holy to shed tears at the death of someone you love. Jesus did it. It's an imitation of him. Everything Jesus did tells us a little bit about who God is. And more than that, he's a perfect example of who we're supposed to be. Because you're not going to get a better example of a human being than, than God who becomes a human being. Okay? It also tells us that everything we've ever experienced in all of our human nature, God knows what it's like. Everything in all of human nature, from the very beginning of the time to the very end of time, all of human nature, Jesus really did take up human nature unto himself. And that means that God knows what it's like. Jesus learned how to walk, God learned how to walk. Jesus learned how to talk, God learned how to talk. Jesus stubbed his toe, God stubbed his toe. Jesus knows what it's like to work a hard day, God knows what it's like to make a living by the sweat of his brow. Jesus was born, God was born. And this is really going to throw you. Jesus died, God died. Okay? That's the strength of the Gospels. It's something in which we can know who God is. He could not possibly make himself clearer. Okay? Now, two ideas, I think, help make this a little bit clearer. One, God was born. People say, no, God wasn't born. God always existed. Think about this. What is birth? What is birth? Uh, what? It's to be conceived and to pass through the birth canal. That happened to Jesus, didn't it? And uh, mothers give birth to persons, don't they? So what we say is that when Mary gave birth to Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity experience birth, which, by the way, is why we call her mother of God. A lot of people will say, no, she's mother of Jesus, but she's not mother of God. No, she's mother of God. Because the one she gave birth to is the second person of the Blessed Trinity who took on flesh. Does this make sense? Okay. I'm, I'm, I, it's actually, I, I, you deserve an apology that I have to go through this so fast because this is so, so, so transformative to your understanding of who God is and who you are and everything you've ever experienced. I hope, I hope this will become helpful to you if you think about it more. There's nothing that Jesus received that any human being didn't receive from his mother that Jesus didn't get from Mary. And the second thing is God died. 
people will say, no, God, God can't die. God can't die. What is death? We'll get to this uh, in, we will get to this in how many weeks? Um, One, two weeks. What is death? Very simple. Separation of your soul from your body. That's it. You are right now, as you sit, body and soul. Everybody knows what the body is. The soul is that part of you that is spiritual. It's what knows and what loves. Which we talked about, I think, before. But if we haven't, we'll get to it later. To have your soul separated from your body. Your body goes into a coffin. Your soul lives on. Your memories live on. Your love lives on. Everything that makes you, you, lives on. To have your body separated from your soul, that's what we call death. That happened. And the one it happened to was the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Okay, um, So a few little more points about Jesus' identity that might help. He had two intellects, divine and human. He could understand as God understands, but also it says he learned and to grow in wisdom and knowledge. So he really studied and really learned, and somehow his divine knowledge didn't annihilate his human knowledge, so he had a real life, just like we have a real life. He had two wills. He had a divine will, and he had a human will, but they were always together. They were always together, which shows us that the perfection of our being is when our human will is always aligned with God's divine will. That's all God ever wants from us anyway. That's all happiness is made out of anyway. And and genuine becoming who you're made to be, aligning your will with God. Jesus' whole life, divine and human, were alive, were aligned. You know the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus sweated blood the night before he died on the cross, and he prayed, Father, if it be your will, may this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours be done. That's holiness. That's holiness. When your will and God's will are aligned in perfect, in perfect union. There's one big difference between Jesus and ourselves, and that is that Jesus never sinned. Sin is not part of being human. People will say, well, you know, I committed adultery and I had an affair, but I'm only human, right? I was under pressure, and yeah, I told a lie to the court, but I'm only human. No, that's not human nature. That's a deficiency in your human nature, but that's not human nature. That's a weakness in your human nature, but that's not your human nature. Um, That's the lack of human nature that's coming through there. Sin is not your human nature. It's a misuse of your human nature. The more you do God's will, the more you become who God created you to be. The more you commit sin, the more you become a creature of your own making. Um, And ultimately, all these things that I said about Jesus force a binary choice on everybody. It, you either hear these, you either know who Jesus is and you confess that he's God or you confess that he's not God, but you can't get that one halfway. You can't be like, well, he's sort of God. Or he, he, I had one woman, she, she said to me, well, you know, he's God for you, but not for me. You, you don't understand the meaning of the word God if you, if you just said that sentence. You can't be God for you and not for me. He's either God for everybody, and I mean for the entire universe, or he's not at all. Now, the fact that Jesus made this claim to be God, and it wasn't just Jesus who made this claim. The apostles themselves realized it. Peter says it. Uh, Doubting Thomas says it. And Jesus affirms them in what they said. When, they, when, they con- when Jesus is convicted in, in, in to, to, to die on the cross, the high priest says, I want you to tell me once and for all, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am Remember the story of Moses and the burning bush? 
And, and Moses asked God, what's your name? And, and God says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So yes, he did claim to be God. Understand this. You can't get that one wrong. <laughs> you can't get that one wrong. If you claim to be God, you either are nuts or you're a really, really bad guy, or maybe you actually are who you say you are. The way C.S. Lewis said it is you're either a liar or you're a lunatic or you're the Lord. But those are your only options. We Ultimately, everybody in every religion has to come to a statement where they believe um, about who Jesus is. Okay? I mean, you know where I stand. But this is something you can deepen and deepen and deepen and deepen and deepen your whole life long. Let's take a look at what this means now that we've said all this, that Jesus is a savior. So the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that Jesus would be a savior. What does that mean? A savior. What does that mean? John the Baptist spoke of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does that mean? Jesus himself says, I've come to search out and to save what was lost. And Jesus says, those who are saved by me might have life and have it more abundantly. So there's two things, two things. And I think people often get one or the other, but not both. Jesus came to save us from sin and to give us life. He came to save us from something which we couldn't be saved from on our own. And he came to give us something. And I think people often, people often forget that. What does it mean that Jesus saves us from sin? Or to put it more directly, here's this guy who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And you know, how does that help me now? How? I mean, what, do I have to have like the right feelings about him? You know, like the right convictions about Jesus and how like I, I'll, I'll benefit? How does that help me? How does it help me get into heaven? Well, let me try to under, help understand what a sin is. Okay, try to help understand what a sin is. Um, a sin is an offense. Let's talk about offenses for just a moment. The example that I have in your notes allow me just to try to demonstrate. I won't demonstrate literally, but it would be fun to try. Imagine I have a pie. Let's pretend like it's a pumpkin pie left over from Thanksgiving. And I make to smack you in the face with a pie. What happens? Well, we have a difficult relationship, okay? We will have a very difficult relationship after that. You all might be astonished, surprised, think I've lost my mind. But apart from that, and a little bit of laundry to be washed, not much happens as a consequence, right? Not much happens. Now suppose I take a pumpkin pie and I go to smack, not you in the face, but I go to smack the bishop in the face with a pumpkin pie. What happens? I'm a priest of the diocese, and I say, hey, bishop, smack in the face of the pumpkin pie. It's the same pie, same action, putting a pie in somebody's face, but is it the same offense? It's not really. Let's take it a step further. Let's pretend like it's not the bishop who gets smacked in the face with the pie, but Biden who gets smacked in the face with the pie. Hey, Mr. President, smack. Well, now you're not going to have me for RCIA next week, are you? I'm going to be in a supermax prison somewhere in Colorado, right? Some headline news. The, 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 the late night pundits have a field day with it, right? They'd love it. Wacko priest smacks president in the face with pie. Well, isn't it the same, isn't it the same action as me putting a pie in somebody's face? Is it the same thing? It's really not the same thing, is it? Have I, have I created this principle clearly enough? It's not just what you do, but who you do it to that determines what an offense is. Clear? Okay. 
The thing about sin is that it's an offense against not the president or the pope or the bishop, but against the infinite God. And the point that I hope that you can intuit is that makes it an infinite offense. I cannot, on my own power, reconcile an infinite offense. Maybe I can plead my case after a few years of time in a supermax prison. Maybe I can reduce my sentence. Who knows? Or maybe I can beg the bishop's apology or something like that. I can make up for it with enough effort and with enough time. But all the effort and all the time in the world can't make up for an infinite offense. Who's the only one who's got infinity that could possibly bridge an infinite gap? God or man? God. Okay. How many God, how many times has God become a man? Only once. That's why Jesus is the Savior. He's God and man. He's the only one. People will say, you Christians are so exclusivistic, you know, that, that, you know, that, you sh- that only Jesus is the Savior. What about Buddha being the Savior for the Buddhists? What about Muhammad being the Savior for them? We say, if anybody goes to heaven, the only reason they get there is because of Jesus Christ. There is no other bridge. There is no other bridge. There's no other way that the chasm between God and man is closed. If anybody anywhere gets to heaven in any way, shape, or form, the only reason they got there was because of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say he's the Savior. Um, And so we say, oh, isn't that great? Now, if I'm a Protestant or like a a fundamentalist Protestant, that's about as far as my understanding of Jesus goes because, you know, he erased my sin. Thanks be to God, he erased my sin. And I echo that. Thanks be to God, he erased my sin. But doesn't it strike you as something a little bit shallow if the only thing Jesus is is a great big divine eraser, right? I mean, suppose I came up to you and, and, and said, hey, I got good news. You say, what's the good news? Um, well, you know, you, you, you're, you've got heart trouble, but I'm going to pay for your quadruple bypass surgery, right? I, and I've, just, I've just declared a problem and declared a solution to the problem. And it's not really earth-shattering good news to you, right? I mean... You've heard better news in your life. So if somebody comes along and says, well, there's this infinite offense and it's called sin, but somebody's paid for it. You pretty much go back to your life as it was before. That doesn't rock you to your core. There's much, much more to who Jesus is and what he's done for us than just erasing our sin. Um, and this is, what we, this is fully what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Savior and the Redeemer. He came to buy us back, granted but he also came to give us the fullness of life. St. Paul put this in three terms. He came to redeem us, reconcile us, and to justify us. To redeem us, literally to buy us back. To wipe clean the slate. I'll give you just a little bit of Old Testament reference just for fun. In the Old Testament, um, people would go to battle, you know, the... Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, so they all, Israelites, they go to battle with each other. And they would take prisoners. And you'd be a prisoner, say, of the Amalekites. Who's the only, that's the only way you'd ever get out of prison? If somebody paid your ransom. Pretty much the only person who would ever come and pay your ransom would be a family member. So literally, when we talk about the redeeming, we're saying he's like a family member who's coming to buy you back from slavery. He reconciles us. He does more than just buy us back. He restores good relations. And thirdly, he justifies us. He gives us the gift of his own nature. Let's talk about those three things. First of all, redemption. Redemption. Even if you've never even heard of Adam and Eve, I think you could look around and say something's wrong with this world, correct? I used to teach high school religion at O'Connell High School. 
And I would begin every year by asking the students, raise your hand if you think this is a screwed up world. And every hand in the room goes up. I remember a graduation speaker once, and he got up for his grad. He was one of these comic syndicated columnists for some newspaper. I forget his name. And he got up there, and his whole speech was, graduates, we've given you a perfect world. Now don't go screw it up, right? And everybody laughs. Because everybody knows something's wrong with this world, correct? Something's wrong. What we say is that God made a good world, but we broke it. We broke it by disobeying God. That was the original sin. Something was broken. Our unity with God was broken. The entirety of human race was separated from God. Like I said to you before, God bridged that. That's redeeming. But he did more than that. He reconciled us. Now imagine this. First of all, the word reconcile. I love, I love words. Reconcile um, literally means to be eyelash to eyelash with somebody. Um, concilium is your eyelash. is a Latin word for eyelash. Concilium. And if you're re conciliare with somebody, you're, you're once again, eyelash, you're just so close, you're eyelash to eyelash with them. That's what it means to be reconciled. So imagine this. Imagine a guy's got a girlfriend and they break up. And he'd do anything in the world to restore the relationship. And lo and behold, um, I don't know, he says the right things, sends her flowers, writes the perfect card, and he gets a second chance. And the relationship is restored. That's what Jesus did to us. He gave us a second chance. He undid the breakup. Um, we restored the friendship that was lost. If you heard the story of the prodigal son, you know that the prodigal son ran away from the father, broke his relationship, but the relationship was restored when they were reunited. But Jesus takes it a step further. And this is, I think, the most interesting thing about the entire Catholic faith. This last part. We're justified. And we won't really get into this until we talk about prayer and the spiritual life. But remember how I said that Jesus is both God and man? One person, right? Two natures. God took on human nature. The most amazing thing about our whole faith is that God didn't just take on human nature. He allowed human nature to rise up to divine nature in him. Now I said nature is what you are. You're a human being, can do things human beings do. If you were a duck, you could swim like a duck. If you were a dog, you could bark like a dog. If you were a bird, you could fly like a bird. If you had divine nature, you could do the things that God does. I know this might sound strange at this stage, but in point of fact, the fullness of holiness that God calls us to is that he wants to raise us up to divine nature. That's what justifying means. He wants to raise us up to God's life. Go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and you'll find that it ends with a wedding. Did I mention this before? I'm mentioning it now. In Greek plays, you know, ancient Greek plays, there are comedies and tragedies. You ever seen the comedy and tragedy masks, like little for, for dramatic theater, like a little smiley face? A comedy was, a, was a, pl a Greek play which ended in a wedding. A tragedy was a Greek play in which everyone ended up dead on the floor. The Bible ends in a wedding. It's a comedy. I mean, according to, Greek according to Greek literature terms, the Bible is a comedy. But it ends up in a wedding. What's the wedding? Who's the wedding between? God and his people. Now consider this. Weddings happen between equals. Like Cinderella. Before Cinderella marries the prince, she first has to be raised to the level of royalty. Then she becomes able to enter into the wedding. 
God intends to raise us to divine nature. That's the process of growing in holiness. That's what Jesus offered us. That's what happens when we strive to grow in holiness, prayer, all these things. You get better and better and better and better and better. When you look at the lives of the saints, a few of whom I've told you about, um, you begin to realize just how truly beautiful a human being can become. They can really be a reflection of who God is. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Branches aren't associated with the vine. They're alive with the same life. There's a relationship God wants to offer you that's closer and deeper than any human relationship. Even a mother and a child are two separate people. But in Christ, we're united to his very being, like cells in a body. Like I said, the saints live this fully. But can you see that God does more than just erase sin? In point of fact, what Jesus offers us makes it better than it ever would have been if there would never been a sin in the very first place. When you go to the Easter vigil, when you get your sacraments at Easter time, I will sing a song at the beginning of Mass. I light a great big candle. Anybody ever been to an Easter vigil before? Okay, well, you will. Light a great big candle, and I sing a song. It's called the Exultet. And one of the lines in that song is, Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam that won for us so great a Redeemer. We actually call the original sin a happy fault. Why? Because we're better off after it than we would ever would have been before. Better off. If there'd never been an original sin, there never would have been God become a man. There never would have been the opportunity for you to rise to God's own level. Heaven will forever be better because of what Jesus did. Our task as Christians is trying to internalize what that means. Jesus' strength becomes your strength. You're empowered by his own strength. Our task is to understand it and to grow in it. Notes for reference at the end of your uh, at the end of your uh, uh, notes here, just for fun, if you want to see images of Jesus, true God, you can look up any of those passages. If you want to see images of Jesus as a true man, you can look up any of those passages. But I hope that's good enough for one evening.